Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian book reviews contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott and I'm assistant editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or $60 for print plus online. For publishers, arts companies, self-published authors, writing centres and others, you can advertise on the ABR podcast. The ABR podcast represents a cost-effective and unique advertising platform. ABR podcast listeners are engaged in the world of books, arts and ideas. For more information, contact us via the ABR website. Shirley Hazard is widely regarded as one of Australia's finest novelists. She published only four novels during her long lifetime, but each of them is distinctive, and two of them qualify as among our most celebrated novels. Many critics rate The Transit of Venus, from 1980, as one of the greatest novels of the 20th century. The Great Fire, from 2003, won her the National Book Award in the US and the Miles Franklin Award. Her short stories, which seemed to arrive fully formed when she began publishing them in The New Yorker in the 1950s, are in a class of their own. Now, in a country worryingly short of literary biographies of its best writers, we have Shirley Hazard, A Writing Life, written by Brigitte Olubis. It's published by Farrah Strauss and Giraud in the States, where Hazard lived for much of her life, and by Virago in the United Kingdom. And what a biography it is. Professor Alubis has done full justice to Hazard, who was immensely cultivated and well-travelled, and who seemed to know everyone of note in America and Europe. So this seems like a good opportunity to speak to Brigitte Alubis about this complex, alluring, peripatetic artist. Brigitte Alubis is Professor of English at the University of New South Wales. Her books include Shirley Hazard, Literary Expatriate and Cosmopolitan Humanist, and, with Elizabeth McMahon, Remembering Patrick White. She has also edited Shirley Hazard's Collected Stories. Brigitte Alubis, welcome to the ABR podcast. Hi, lovely to be here. First, warm congratulations from me, if I may, on your new book. What a service it is for we devotees of Shirley Hazard. For me, it's hard to think of a more insightful or exhaustive biography of a major writer in this country. And I'm sure your achievement will be acknowledged abroad, where Hazard was, I guess, in some ways, our most acclaimed writer since Patrick White. So warm congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's really meaningful to to hear that from an, an Australian literary figure. And the response from Australia has, the Australian critics has, has also been really warm. It's a great pleasure to have finished it. And it's really wonderful to see it being so well received. Let's start by talking about the project itself. Where does a biographer begin when tackling a life of someone who 
grows up in Sydney, then Wellington and Hong Kong, and then divides her mature years between New York and Italy, seems to know everyone, corresponds with them extensively, and then lives into her mid-80s. It's a, it's a great question and a great question to begin with. We have to start with the work, I think, with the literary biography that is absolutely paramount. Um, with Shirley Hazard, that became even more pressing or, or, or imperative from my perspective, partly because I'm, I'm a literary critic first and foremost. I have written extensively on her work and knew it very well. So that seemed a natural starting point for me in terms of my own capacities. But also she, as a writer, brought the worlds of her novels so rapturously into the reader's eye, into the reader's imagination. So when I was beginning thinking about writing about Sydney and I did what I could to read about Sydney at that time, historical things, nonfiction and so on, and then I, I could not find anything that was as sharp and as moving and as telling as the scenes from the, the Transit of Venus or so, one of the stories where she describes the Sydney of her childhood. So as I wrote, I found myself turning to the books themselves to recreate those worlds, the literal worlds, the material world she grew up in. But also more broadly, as I found, she was also describing the cultural worlds, the social worlds through her, her fiction. The same was true uh, in many ways of New York, certainly true of Italy, those beautiful early novels about Italy. Those were my first source point and uh, that was also the impulse for the whole the whole biography. But I suppose I should also say she uh, she left an extraordinary record of her life in her correspondence. Her diaries are more fragmentary and they are quite changeable. Maybe we will talk about those later. But the letters that she wrote, unbelievably beautiful prose, rapturously describing the scene from her balcony in in Naples or or wherever. Um, so she left this amazing record of the world she lived in, in her non-published writing as well. How much travel was involved over how many years and how much did the pandemic complicate it at the, you know, in the latter stages of yeah. the biography? Yeah. Well, I've been writing on Shirley Hazard actually for decades, but this last bout seriously, I began writing the monograph in 2011 and before that, I had been, I went to New York a couple of times to look at archives, which were mainly at that stage, just her UN papers. There was, she hadn't yet sent her other papers or even found them. She'd by then started losing her memory and wasn't sure where they were. In fact, they were in her basement and were very nearly thrown out at one point, <laughs> miraculously rescued at the last minute. So then I started going most years for a couple of weeks to New York and rifling through the boxes, which were quite chaotic. She hadn't really been looking after the material. Um, there was a lot of extraneous material there. And I mean, there were wonderful moments like, and this is a story I've told a few other times, a big box of, of what looked like fan mail, and it was almost all fan mail about the transit of Venus. And in amongst it, there was a, a, what was clearly an Australian aerogram and I fished it out and it was from someone called C. Blake from Hurstville, New South Wales. And I thought, oh, you know, Mr. Blake or Mrs. Blake. Is it? And opened it up and, of course, it was an aerogram from Christina Stead uh -huh. living in Hurstville at the time. 
uh, as as part of their you know very brief correspondence. So that you know that was an extraordinary kind of archival adventure. Uh, so I I captured most of the material then, but it was chaotic and haphazard. So and I, I was it was photographs on my phone. So thirty thousand images of letters and diaries and things. Then it was moved after she died to the archives at Columbia, but unsorted. It's being sorted finally now, being processed so other researchers can go in mm. and have a happier time of it than I did. So the good side of it, I suppose, was I got to go to New York every year. I had a reason to go, and that that was wonderful. I, I also do. went to, to Italy. I made a point, actually, of going to all the places she'd lived and to see just the trace of a, a, a scene she'd described still legible in Hong Kong was was kind of astonishing. But to feel weather and atmosphere and the mood, I don't know, it, it felt important. So the same to Wellington. And I retraced whatever I could discern of, of her steps in all those places. So that was wonderful, a wonderful experience, actually, of, of retracing someone's life in, in different places and then seeing some of those locations in photographs that I eventually kind of uncovered. As far as the pandemic goes, it was a bit of a, it was a great writing time. I was actually in New York getting some archival material in March 2020. So I came, dashed home quickly and had to leave before getting to one last box of correspondence that was in uh, Austin, Texas, because I, I just thought it's getting too dangerous Mm -hmm. being, being in, in, America, in Trump's America, actually, you know, at, at, at that time. So that kind of delayed things. So it, on the one hand, the pandemic was wonderful because it allowed me all that time sitting at home, not allowed to go anywhere, just, just writing. And I think a lot of writers have found that. But it made getting to archives, the last few bits of archives, quite difficult. There was a delay. Then I had to do things remotely. There was one extraordinary experience with an archive material I didn't end up using, but they did Zoom sessions for researchers where the archivist with their white gloves would hold up the manuscript to the Zoom camera and I would read the diary and then say, turn the page, please, and so on. So there, there were just astonishing ways around, um, people found astonishing ways around um, the pandemic. I also discovered Shirley's diaries and notebooks right at the end. I had written maybe a third of the book already and found this last box at Columbia that I had never seen before and opened it up and there were the, the notebooks, the first fragments of all the novels, her diary entry from August 1960 when she got the letter in the kitchen at Salaya in Siena from the New Yorker saying, yes, we want your story. And she said, I went to the town and bought a notebook and brought it back and wrote from the back because I didn't think I had anything important enough to start at the front with. And that's all absolutely as she said. So that diary entry's there. That meant I had to go back and rewrite a lot of what I had already written where I'd kind of surmised or guessed. I could add layers of detail and texture here and there. It was a complex time really and a, and a complex temporality to be writing in with delays and also concentrations of time. Really good to be at the end of it, though. <laughs> the intensity. I, it, it, it's, it's wonderful to hear about the diaries and notebooks because they're so vivid, so remarkable, and they really inform the biography. Um, a follow-up question. Do, do you think the um, 
diaries will be publishable in some form. And along the way, did you, and I hope you're going to say yes, discover any fictions we don't know about? Sadly, no to the second question. I had found a couple of pieces that were included in the collected stories. Mm-hmm. I also found a few essays that hadn't been published before and they were included back in 2016 in the in the essays. No, and I was so hoping to find a fragment of that last novel that she told people she was writing and there were fragments and I included bits of them here and there in the, in, uh, the biography, but really nothing more than a couple of lines. I don't know that the diaries, I mean, that's certainly a job for another scholar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're very fragmentary. They're not in chronological order. Some of them are dated, some of them are not. Yes, yes, what a project that would be. Hazard's relations with her small family, there were only two siblings, could only be considered fraught. Tell us about Shirley Hazard's parents and especially her mother, Catherine, known as Kit. Yeah, it was a very dark and difficult, unhappy family life. Um, She spoke of her parents as if they had come from the kind of background that she came from um, in terms of wealth and family background, which was not true. They both came from very poor, very dark backgrounds, not particularly well-educated and her father was obviously a man of great energy and ambition, and he really worked the, the few opportunities he had to his own advantage and, and had a, a, a meteoric professional rise, leading to him becoming Australian Trade Commissioner to, well, first of all, Hong Kong and then New York, and which at the time he was described in the press as Australia's highest paid public servant. So from someone of unknown background. We don't know who his his birth parents were. He was adopted. He grew up in Kempsey and dropped out of school before finishing, had an ignominious period in the, in the army in the First World War, which she later spoke of as my father was in the trenches. He wasn't, you know. So, so she kind of glamorised that background. She also spoke of her mother as if she'd come from a, a bourgeois Scottish family her family worked in the the Damask Mills in um, Dunfermline, and she she uh, didn't finish school either. And and so it was a very uneducated and unprivileged um, background that they came from. Materially, all of that improved for Shirley and her sister. They lived in in a, a wealthy suburb. They went to a, a very good school, um, but they were not permitted to go to university. There was no support for that. Uh, so, and Shirley very much crafted that intellectual and aesthetic life for herself from whatever she could find. All of that was hampered further by her mother's delicate mental health. She was apparently later diagnosed as bipolar, according to Shirley. Uh, and certainly, I mean, it's quite heartbreaking reading the correspondence and the diaries even through those years because there's clearly no sense of how serious the mental illness was. And Shirley and her sister are both characterising their mother as difficult, (laughs) impossible, you know, you need to do more, you need to do more kind of thing. Her sister um, clearly saw that some kind of institutionalisation would have been a better process, a better way of caring for the mother, of keeping her safe. Uh, Shirley wouldn't hear of it. And that was one of the rifts, I think, between the two of them. And I think her sister Valerie was was right. I think there could have been some less onerous <laughs> on those around her process for, for looking after Kit's health. 
but the the mental illness manifested in kind of in rages in various kinds of intemperate behavior multiple threats to suicide including mm. you know from when Shirley was a very little girl asking Shirley to come and put her head in the oven the gas oven with her and die together I mean the, the impact of that on a little child is horrible to imagine. And the relations with Valerie, the sister, were always very tense and, and really broke down at, towards the end of, yeah. of, of their lives. I mean, there was constant rivalry, it would seem, and distrust between them. The father, similarly, Shirley Hazard distanced herself from after he left the family in New York and went off with his longtime mistress who had followed him there and he marries her. But I think Hazard seems to have had very little to do with her. But he did obviously do at least two really good things for Hazard. He took her to Hong Kong and then he moved the family to New York because of these senior positions. In Hong Kong, still in her teens, Hazard met glamorous man, considerably older than herself, Alexis or Alec Vedenyapin, born in St. Petersburg and raised in Shanghai. They fell in love, surely especially so it would seem. And in some ways, it looks like the great love of her life, one she went on idealising, perhaps regretting and reimagining all her life. After all, it forms the subject of her last novel, the 2003 novel, The Great Fire. Tell us about this really formative episode in Hazard's life. It's an extraordinary thing that as soon as she leaves Australia, she meets people who are the kinds of people she's always wanted to meet, people who consumed poetry the way she consumed it, who could recite at the drop of a hat reams of poetry. And, and Alexis Vednyapin was one of these, you know, so he's a he's Russian fluent in several Chinese languages due to his childhood, but went to boarding school in the UK and sounds like the most English Englishman you can imagine. And she loved his Englishness and she turns him into an English hero in, in The Great Fire. And that character is so much less interesting than he is with this, this cosmopolitan kind of background. But he said above all, his connection to England was through literature, was through poetry. So that is a, such a Shirley Hazard kind of thing to say that the only bond of national identification or belonging is through the work of poetry. So that's, you know, almost in a nutshell why she would have fallen for him. She was very young. She was 17 and 18 during the years that they were together, although they only had a half a year, I think, of, of seeing each other as a couple. He was in, I think, in his early 30s. He was also dashingly handsome, had been a war hero, wounded and so on. And again, I don't think she ever grasped the fact of the impact of the war on him, which is very legible to someone, a more mature reader such as myself, reading his letters to her, the fragility of the man in the face of all the all that he's been through in the war and this fairly complex life that he lived, you know, in, in his earliest years. And he's only just holding things together. But for Shirley, he is her great hero deliverer. He is the man who's going to solve everything, the man she made him into in, in The Great Fire. So that was a passionate first love affair. Her diaries about it are <laughs> almost unreadable. I mean, if you compare Shirley Hazard's first diaries with, say, Sylvia Plath's, Sylvia Plath is this exquisite poet from the beginning. Shirley Hazard's 
teenage diaries are as bad as mine, I think, you know, that this kind of self-indulgent, not beautifully phrased expressions of love. But she had to leave. Her sister contracted tuberculosis. The family left Hong Kong. He had already gone back to England. And then follows this couple of years where she's not allowed to go to England to see him. She still needs support from her, her parents. But he's writing to her. And his, his letters are quite diffident and charming, but he's clearly very, well, he says he's in love with her. His tone is not rapturous as, mm. as hers is. But she keeps delaying the departure. And uh, eventually he has a kind of breakdown and breaks off the relationship, the light of that. Now, for Shirley at the time, yes, she was angry with her parents, but it wasn't until much later, I think when she was actually rewriting this, when she went back and read her diaries again, that she started imagining that her parents, her mother in particular, had intervened and prevented them from being together because there was no evidence of that in the material from the time. Shirley was the one who was delaying the sailing and there were no interventions that she mentioned then from the mother. To add to that, when Shirley met Alec again later, she, she and a, another friend from Hong Kong visited him and his wife and family in Wales where he was happily farming. She judged him very harshly. She felt he had not fulfilled the promise that he had shown and she could not see how happy he was or that he was happy in, in that setting. And so she writes quite coldly of him in her diaries of that period. But later, after he dies, this reconstruction of the great first love happens. And it happens as she is piecing together the great fire. So it is largely a fiction, as far as I can see. One that helped her through those last years, I think. But in my view, one that made The Great Fire into less a less great novel than it might otherwise have been. She was, of course, very young when she falls in love with him. I think she's about 18 or 19 when she's wrenched away, which nearly breaks her heart, doesn't it, when she has to leave, yes. leave yes. Hong Kong. Then she has a very unhappy year or so in New Zealand. But they go back to Sydney and then she's taken off to this pretty glamorous life in New York, soon to be disrupted by the father's defection. It's interesting to me, I don't know why, but I had this kind of idea of Shirley Hazard as, as Saint Shirley, but in fact, she had quite a, you know, she she was such a romantic creature and she has a series of pretty racy affairs, usually with older guys who are married. She often knows the wives, mixes with them. And that was, that, I don't know why, probably being conservative of me, surprised me. She mixes, she gets to know some homosexuals, often in the arts. She has, So she's entering pre-Francis Stigmuller, entering a very interesting but rather more bohemian life. You've spoken of that kind of lifelong, it seems, desire of hers for the aesthetic life, for the beautiful life. And clearly here poetry was central. She was immensely literary and widely read, but I had no idea she was so steeped in literature and from an early age. We poets all carry a lot of poetry in our heads, but really Hazard was in a class of her own. She consumed enormous amounts of poetry, as you've suggested, English, French, American, Italian, and on and on it goes. And she could recite remarkably 
so much of it by heart, and she would do so at the drop of a, a hat. That connection with the poetry and in a very genuine, impassioned way and with the canon were absolutely central to her life, it seems. And I think she's very remarkable in, in that sense. Absolutely. It was the, the centre of her life. It, it saved her. And she spoke about that whenever she could as well. I found it one of the most moving aspect of her character. I'd already, from working on her writing, it seemed clear she was steeped in poetry. The writing is so aphoristic. There are so many hints mm. of quotations and so on of lines of poetry that most of which you know unknown to me with, without the erudition that, that she had but you know when she described it as the longest love greatest love you know I mean it absolutely was for her and there are those beautiful scenes that, that in fact her husband described Francis described in a diary of with a taxi driver in Rome he starts re reciting some Italian poetry to her in the taxi. She That sets her off. She's quoting straight back as Leopardi. And, and Francis lists the half dozen or so Italian poets that the two of them are reciting back and forth all the way home in the taxi. And then they get out at the Hassel Hotel and the porter comes out and they're still reciting. And they say, <laughs> all of them are in tears. And the, and the porter says, it is only amongst the humble people that there is poetry today. And for her, that was the lifeblood for her, that, that kind of experience, and to meet people who loved poetry that way. And I think that was utterly genuine. There were various aspects of her persona that were clearly fabricated, you know, bunging it on a bit, you know, but there's no, for me, that was a, a deep and deeply honest part of her character that redeems a lot of the other things that may not be quite so beautiful about her. You talked in that, in your question, you mentioned those early love affairs. Were they love affairs? They were affairs, adulterous, all with older men and falling in love with, with gay friends as well. Making just love for her through those years seems to have been driven by error, <laughs> seems to have been driven by wrongness and mistakenness. And I mean, to have a fling with of the, the New Yorker editor, a renowned womanizer, you know, like just mm. everybody, you know, knew his reputation. And yet she was surprised when he didn't call. And I think that all feeds into the, this kind of untimeliness of her, her quality, her character, both as a writer and a person. She was very innocent and ignorant, sort of in terms of sexuality in the world and of people. She was not good at reading that. And she was not so much interested even in the poetry and the visual art of her own period. She was much more interested in, in older styles, older approaches. And that was a safer kind of home for her. And indeed, going back to the classics and she and Stigmuller read them constantly and they'll read War and Peace together several times through. Can you imagine doing Hamlet, that? Thucydides, you yeah. know, <laughs> just, just extraordinary. Absolutely. And, and it would be, in a cynical age, easy to parody this aesthetic life, but I entirely agree with you. It seems completely genuine. Hazard stories and novels are saturated in her own life story, her travels, her vexed childhood, her pretty complicated early erotic life. Most impressive to me about your book is the way you draw on the fiction to illustrate your arguments about the life. 
it's hard to think of another biography that does this so brilliantly, though Leon Edel's five-volume life of Henry James comes to mind. What were your models there and who are the biographers that have influenced you most? That's a, a lovely comment. Thank you. I was not a reader of biography before I agreed to take this on. It was one of the reasons I, I was reluctant uh, to do it. I'm a literary critic, I said. I'm, and uh, the poet Rosanna Warren, who was a friend of Shirley Hazard's, the daughter of Robert Penn Warren and Eleanor Clark, writes beautifully in her introduction to her biography, recent biography of the Cubist poet Max Jacob. She said she wrote a poem about him and years ago as a grad student and her editor said, would you, would you write a biography? And she said, I will never write a biography. It is a low mimetic form. <laughs> and Lord knows I've been, I've been sufficiently chastened since then um, in writing it. But that, in a way, described my attitude as well. It, it, it did not seem to me as interesting as literary criticism. It seemed, yeah, more routine. But I, I'm also quite chastened by the process and completely fascinated by it. And I, so I don't have a biographer that I admire. I mean, Hermione Lee is, is someone whose work I have, you know, very much admired. The Leon Edel is, <laughs> is amazing, absolutely amazing. Perhaps my favourite biography of all time is the Sylvia Townsend Warner biography of T.H. White that mm -hmm. has, like this year, just been republished. But that's a very different biography too, more, mm. more reticent, less disclosing. I've kind of disclosed everything I could about, about Hazard because that felt to be the task uh, because she had muddied things uh, or reworked things so exquisitely. I wanted a sense of the, the beating heart kind of underneath it, uh, whereas the Sylvia Townsend Warner biography is very respectful of the, um, the subterfuges or the, the concealments of, of T.H. White. But that, that would be my, my most loved biography of, of all time, I think. Hassard meets the much older Frances Stigmuller in her early 30s. I think she may be 32 when Muriel Spark introduces them. And the attraction is immediate. Though, again, Stigmuller seems to have wavered for a year or so, still mourning the loss, it must be said, of his first wife, who was disabled and extremely wealthy. Tell us about Stigmuller, this great Flaubert scholar, and his impact on Hazard personally, and I suppose kind of socially and materially. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's like a, a character out of a novel, <laughs> too. The first marriage, which was um, substantial and clearly devoted, Beatrice Stein was indeed wealthy and disabled and also an extraordinary and extraordinarily magnetic personality and an amateur painter. But through Beatrice, Francis, who also came from a relatively humble background himself, even though he seemed to the manner born, like as, as Shirley did later in life, is it wasn't just her wealth, but it was her wealth of connections. She was studying painting with the brother of Marcel Duchamp, uh, Jacques Villon, in Paris, and they knew those Cubist circles really well. She was a patron of the arts, as her mother had been and, and many of their friends were. So 
It was through her that Francis met Ralph Ellison, the the great African-American writer, and they were also, in a way, patrons of of him while he was writing Invisible Man. So Mm -hmm. when you mentioned before, she surely seems to have known everyone. The nature and the extent of the circles, artistic, literary, in Paris, in Italy, in, in New York, was was just staggering. So Beatrice was absolutely central to Francis and he was very distressed by her, her death. He he had also been in analysis, as as had she, as had I think most artistic people in New York through those through those years. And Shirley was furious about that, furious about him him remaining in analysis and, and mm. he seems to have, have stopped uh, six months or so after the marriage. So that was possibly at her at her insistence. His appeal had to have been material as well as intellectual. He was described as handsome, so you know presumably there's some erotic appeal there as well. But it was a very difficult relationship for that first year. Someone I know described it as him gaslighting her, and there's a there is some coldness and some cruelty in some of the things she recorded of what he had said that sit oddly with the picture that friends of his later years give of him being very gentle and very kindly and, you know, deeply courteous. So there's a there's something else going on and it's hard to know what it was. So it was a vexed beginning, which Shirley later described as the happiest years of my life. So again, she very quickly and very carefully excises the, the difficulty, the pain, and the messiness of real life under this glossy kind of thing of happiness. But that melancholy is also always there in her writing. I must say, when you read the book, and everyone I've spoken to, you really race through this book. You you can't put it down. But one big attraction is when stigma are going to arrive on the scene and, and transform a life. And I think one could say that. And I think the chapter on stigma is absolutely brilliant. There is a biography, I think, of Stigmuller already, but it's very impressive life and is interesting character. But I agree, the chapter where he is teasing her, it would seem to me, he had an affair with someone after Stein's death, and he's really deciding which one to marry and that Spanish trip. It's it's quite painful to read. But even it was interesting to me, she clearly does, there's a, an element of the fantasist in Shirley Hazard, and she does idealise the life. But there are some pretty poignant sections, even on well into their, what is it, 25-year marriage, like his first one, he's married twice for 25 years, when she's almost in, in the most poignant way pleading for some approbation when she's written a paper or something. And there's a very unhappy chapter when, if you will only say something about this work that I've shown you, but externally, it seems to have been the most gilded life. He's wealthy now because he inherits his wife's fortune and the pictures. I mean, whenever they need to realise some money, they'll sell a Degas or a Vuillard or something. Gone for Shirley are the small flats, the uncertainties, the straightened circumstances. They do live beautifully in a way, and they go on living beautifully for 25 years. And it's the kind of ideal life she's always craved. They divide their time between New York and Italy. They stay in permanent rooms in the finest hotels. They travel everywhere in a a Rolls Royce. It all seems rather intended in a way, but 
I can only guess how significant that transformation was for her personally, but in her direction as a great writer. It frees her in a way, though she's also so deferential to Stieg Muller that we only have the two novels during the course of that marriage. And at times she clearly put on hold her own creative work because of the, I suppose, the immense demands of being Mrs. Frances Stigmuller. Yes. She was always going to publish not a lot. She was such a painstaking writer and also so given to being distracted. She was always complaining that there was never time to write, but she was always inviting people to come and stay and everyone except her family, of course. Um, <laughs> this kind of contradiction there. Yes, she did give priority to him and his work. I mean, I mentioned before about her her sort of innocence in terms of the sexual world of the 1950s. Her femininity was was highly conventional. She was, you know, not a feminist. She was not interested, even though she was interested in her own agency and saw herself in heroic terms and liked those kinds of women as well. She was very, very conventional in terms of taking a back seat. She looked after the meals. He looked after the money. And presumably he was conventional in those those ways as well. Although his first wife seems to have been more adventurous in those ways than Shirley was. Also, he had quite significant dementia for the last years of his life and the early signs of that came in the early 80s. So just in the wake of the transit of Venus, in fact, I think she published three novels, well, one just at the beginning of the marriage in 66. Of course, yeah. And then Bay of Noon and... Transit of Venus in 1980. In, I think, early 83, there's the first mention that he's becoming confused and forgetting things. Mm. And then that starts to build up. I mean, he's, he manages very well. He's still publishing a lot. Their friends told me that she covered for him socially. She would work things so that he could be included in social occasions but there was never a formal acknowledgement of his condition, so she worked around it. And that took up a lot of her time, and she always maintained that it was so important that he kept working. So even in the last five years of his life, when his dementia is quite significant, he's still working and he produces two books, while her books are endlessly on hold. So publicly, for her, that is honourable. That is the thing to do, that he put a lot of his life aside to care for his first wife. Mm. She felt she should be doing that for him. She felt his work was important. But behind the scenes, she is lamenting very much. She was a highly sensitive, cripplingly sensitive individual, it seems. And there are diary entries right through, really, where she is decimated by him not wanting to hear her talk about some book she's reading, which, frankly, didn't sound that interesting to me either. (laughs) Uh, And, and... You know, she feels that so tragically and, and there's a kind of amplification of the feelings of loss, but only within the confines of her private writing. Publicly, she is very invested in their public happiness and in supporting him. And it is still deeply happy. You know, there is joy in the life that they live together while there is also this, this sensitivity. There seem to be some questions about Stigmuller's sexuality. You quote some, a couple of sources, I think, I forget the details, of people who are fairly sure that he was either bisexual or principally homosexual. I think you come down on the side of the uh, uncertainty as to whether there's enough sources to make a judgment about this, if a judgment is indeed warranted. Yeah, 
I assumed I would find something definitive. I assumed there would have to be something, there would be a letter, you know. What I heard was people saying everyone knew. Everyone knew this. And there were some sources who clearly knew more than others. And in the end, I, I kind of went with them. And that coupled with the fact that I found nothing tangible to suggest there had been anything or, or anyone. Mira Spark was, of course, convinced and she told a lot of people and that kind of, you know, spread amongst her circles. And maybe that's where it all came from. Or maybe he was. You know, mm. that's entirely plausible to, to me to look at his life and his history in the context of, of those years and think, yes, that makes perfect sense that he may have been. We can't know. In the end, it doesn't matter. They were very happy and he had two very happy marriages. People are complicated. Indeed. One of the curious features of Hazard's work and temperament is her ongoing campaign to reform and expose the excesses of the United Nations long after she finished working there. I think she works there for 10 years and in what were then called, I think, pretty secretarial capacities. Even when she attained renown as a writer and great security, she goes on writing articles, stories, whole books, in fact, on the UN and its successes in ways that made her a very controversial figure at times. She was at times almost fanatical in her desire, say, to expose Kurt Voltheim and his, his Nazi affiliations during the war. Can you talk a bit about the UN and about Hazard's immense moral investment in its operations and reform? Yeah, I'm quite torn on this one because, in fact, much of her UN writing and her kind of political commentary more broadly, the pieces, for instance, that I collected in the We Need Silence collection from 2016, are really sharp and smart and thoughtful and engaged, of course they're beautifully written, accounts of things that are wrong with a major institution. And I'm really glad that we have those commentaries. I do go back and look at them as, to me, exemplars really of a certain kind of political commentary that we might, a long form, thoughtful, you know, that we might do well to have more of. Mm. Uh, writing against prevailing currents at the time, looking for longer histories and hidden perfidy. So in part, there is a strength. Certainly the work on Waldheim was really significant historically. Mm. She was the first person to, to tell that story. It was picked up by a US congressman who asked Waldheim on Shirley Hazard Say So, and Waldheim mendaciously rebuffed the, the question on the record and so on. So he lied. And then journalists picked it up a few years later and it became a story and it made no difference at all to the Austrian election as, you know. So on the one hand, that, that was really significant. And in fact, she wasn't seeking to expose the fact that he had been a member of the Nazi party during World War II. She said circumstances would have been that everybody, you know, would have had to be. That's not the problem. It was that he covered that up and then lied about that so that that compromises him in all sorts of ways that then compromise the UN. So it's serious politics with real influence and impact in the world. So there's 
significant kind of achievement and her heroic view of herself as someone who could make a difference because work by her would be published in high-profile journals, as it was, that the criticism should be made. There's a kind of strange counterweight to that, which is, as you say, she was a typist and a really bad secretary. You know, she she never got a good review. And she was always astonished at the, you know, the, the performance reviews that she went through that, you know, her genius was not being recognised. She doesn't seem to have done very much work. She's off, you know, flirting with the boss. There's the lovely photo that I included in the in the book of Shirley Hazard at the UN. She's painting her fingernails. You know, it's, I mean, she looks fabulous. You know, th- these things are quite at odds. She had no access to the significant aspects of the UN in terms of her capacities as a worker. But she was friendly with and took up with people who were important in the union at the UN, and they got her some very important information. So she had access to high-level factual data on which she based her, her criticisms. And she did an extraordinary amount of research. I mean, those trunks that we found in the in the basement... One of them was just full of dirty old news clippings, all of them about the UN. So there's this obsessive Mm. uh, kind of thing. In one of her early diaries from when she's first working there, one of these heartbreaking things about getting a bad performance review, she's saying it's exactly like being in love and not being appreciated. You know, so she's already making that kind of confusion about an improper level of identification with an institution. For her, the UN was a symbol of hope in the post-war that World War II, following on World War I, was so devastating personally for what she saw, the impact of the decimation all around her. She's written very movingly about visiting Hiroshima in 1947 with her family, and that appears in her fiction over and over, and she's written, you know, essays on it as well. That was a, a defining moment for her. The UN was supposed to stop all that. And when she saw the UN not doing what it was supposed to be doing from the start, compromised by its reliance on global superpowers, the US, the USSR in particular, that for her was personally heartbreaking in a way that is, I suppose, difficult for the rest of us to to appreciate. Certainly her friends were bored, stupid, listening to her go on and on about the UN. One friend told me, you know, she ruined a dinner party at my place because she wouldn't stop. He had, on an earlier occasion, taken Edward Said around to to visit. Said admired Steve Muller tremendously and they visited kind of regularly. And apparently Shirley didn't let Frances speak for the whole dinner. She just went on about the UN when Edward Said had clearly come to talk primarily to Frances. So there's these kinds of someone who was socially so generous and receptive and wonderful she became impossible and unbearable on the subject of the UN, particularly in those later years. At its heart, what she was doing, I still feel, was was important. It was important to call those things out. Yeah, she's a woman of considerable contradictions, and I think that's one of the most likeable ones. Here's a considerable aesthete. Yeah. Leads this privileged life, always, it seems, beautifully turned out, always just so impeccable spending her time in uh, six months every year in Italy of an evening reading Tolstoy, Thucydides, Herodotus or whatever. And yet the UN's probably sharpest and most potent critic, the exposer of all time before anyone else, 
And we sense that too when she, on a very rare returns to Australia, when she came back and made sharp observations about the Philistine country and the boorish country she'd grown in, her boy lectures. Two sides of the coin, really. Brigitte, I'm always interested to know how biographical projects alter the biographer's appreciation of the subject. Yours is a deeply sympathetic reading of Hazard, but it's not hagiography. The woman clearly was not without flaws. Some people, you've alluded to this just now, found her completely overbearing in conversation. Um, Others, Patrick White included, considered her a collector of people, a name dropper, and some may have been troubled by her treatment of her unstable mother and that clear over-reliance on the goodwill of Elizabeth Harrower in particular for several years. At the conclusion of this kind of epic scholarly project, not that I guess it's over for you, never will be, did you feel differently about Hazard? When I began, I was not interested in her as a person. What I knew of the figure of, of Shirley Hazard was not someone who particularly interested me at all. I was entranced by the writing, first and foremost, unbelievably close to me. But I, she was very charming when I met her, but I believed the story that she told and that others told about her, that she you know, grew up in a wealthy family, she had a privileged upbringing, and she moved from that into a completely happy life, you know, married to the same person, gilded, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, yeah, I don't, I don't really care. You know, there's much more interesting people in terms of people. What I found as I reread the books through the lens of her life, as I started delving into the primary material, the source material, I discovered a vulnerable, sensitive, quite wounded person who had cobbled together somehow a selfhood out of a, a particularly brutal childhood. Uh, not brutal in material terms, but she lived for the first 17 or 25 years, really, of her life in worlds and amongst people with whom she felt no sympathy, no identification. And that came on top of the instability of a really unhappy, riven family life. So the the great misfortune of an unhappy childhood kind of trumps everything. And how she dealt with that, that kind of striding out into the world, um, that rapture of arriving in Italy and, you know, the the excitement of seeing what she could see, even though it wasn't some idealised Italy, it wasn't Tuscany, it was Naples post-war, it was a wrecked city of incredibly you know, people who were genuinely suffering in in Mm. every possible way. And that this was, in a sense, the place she felt that she she could make a home for herself. That was exciting. And it wasn't the story that she had told of I went to Italy and I met this incredibly cultured family and, you know, which is what we all believed. It was something much rawer, something much more about connecting to place and about finding a home for that melancholy there as well, for that kind of brokenness of of her own background. So I don't see her identification with Italy as some kind of gilding, but more embracing something more honest, I suppose, about herself. Yes, the gilding all happened. That's all there. 
it makes up not just for her unhappy family, but also broken hearts, <laughs> you know, her, her inability to have a straightforward, happy sexual relationship with someone. So um, she she ended up being a lot more interesting. Has that made a difference to how I read the books? No, the books, are, they just stand alone. I found the, the history and the light that it sheds on Australia through those years, I found that really surprising and interesting. I didn't expect her life to tell me very much about, particularly Australia in the 70s and 80s, but the response to her was very telling, I thought, from Australians, the hostility in the face of the Boyer lectures, the hostility to criticism of Australian nationalism. That was interesting. So I learnt an enormous amount <laughs> from the project about my own world, I suppose, but I go back to the books and they were perfect to begin with and they, they kind of still are. And that surely is one of the great things about biographies, that they send us back to the work with new insights and renewed fascination. And that's why I've been known to lament the dearth of literary biographies in this country. Since reading your inspired book, I've been reading her short fiction again, especially the early ones, the Italian stories, those languorous Jacobian studies of disaffection or alienation and often failing failing marriages. It's so good to have an opportunity to remind people about the strengths of that short fiction, which must be among her greatest contributions, like that exquisite story, uh, Harold, about the poet who visits, a story for which she had great fondness because she recited, wouldn't she, again, at the drop of a hat. The, the short fiction is so, so wonderful. Um, can, I, can I say in response to that, that mm. comment, Helen Garner spoke very beautifully to me about, um, oh, I've quoted her in, in the book, very, very eloquently about how much she had not liked Shirley Hazard's writing back in the in the 70s and 80s. And she, everyone loved it. And I was, you know hated everything and I knew she despised Australia and you know and then well she said she read Michelle de Kretz's book on on Shirley Hazard and was entranced by the quality of attention that de Kretz brought to Hazard and was on the back of that inspired to begin again and she went to the that first collection of short mm -hmm. stories and I think her email to me said now you're talking <laughs> <laughs> that suddenly and she says and I quote this in the biography she was seeing things that she had not been ready to see back then when they first came out. So returning to them later in life at a different period in Australian mm -hmm. literary history as well and finding just how, how the joy of just how good they were. So that that was a beautiful moment for me in, in terms of the research I did to hear that lovely story of not getting it and then really getting it as, as a story of reading, which I really loved. Yes, that was a great section in the book. And it's little wonder, really, that Helen, in the end, did sort of, in a sense, come round because of their shared mastery of precision, their interest in psychology, and their very impressive command of syntactical variety. I mean, they can both do things with a sentence that uh, <laughs> leave the, the rest. The rest of us can only dream of, certainly two of the great, great stylists of, yeah. of the century. Indeed, indeed. Where Shirley Hazard is concerned, there's so much more to discuss, but I have time only for one more question, and it's a pretty obvious one. You've spoken already that you weren't kind of a natural biographer, that you came to this in a sense by accident, and I'm very glad that you were persuaded to go on to do it. Can I ask, are you thinking of writing another biography? 
I would really like to. I have a couple of things that I'm thinking through. Um, it will be a very different experience, of course, because I came to the Hazard biography having been immersed in Hazard's writing and it was the first, the first biography. So I, I was dealing with, you know, the brute fact, <laughs> the, the, the unsorted papers. So I am completely compelled now by, by the genre. So I'm born again. <laughs> I think what I really loved about it was biography feels like one of the places where scholarship can reach a wider audience yeah. in a completely inherent, intrinsic, natural kind of way. And at this stage in my academic career, that's what I'm most interested in is writing beyond the institution, writing for that wider audience in the same way that, of course, all we academics do when we give lectures. You know, that that's one of, for most of us, a great pleasure of our lives when we teach students. It is about communicating the complexity of what you've gleaned in a different kind of idiom. And it feels quite urgent to be doing that kind of work today, here. So I'm impelled by that that sort of sense of mission. It's it's quite hazardesque, isn't it? It's, it sort of feels, feels heroic, but I'm quite excited about that, the prospect of writing another one. Oh, this is very good news. I wish you well with it. Brigitte, you. uh, you've been most generous with your time. Thank you for appearing on the ABR podcast. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.